welcome back to when push comes to shove on today's episode we have the gorgeous janelle here who is an ibclc a postnatal doula and an all-round awesome person and she is also the creator and founder of milk mentors who i did my breastfeeding peer support course with and i absolutely loved it so welcome janelle thank you so much for joining us and would you like to tell us a little bit about how you began your journey and your IBCLC and uh, and also you're doing your sacral, yeah. sacral cranial therapy and it would be awesome to hear all about that as well take it away yeah. thank you I'm Janelle like you said I'm an IBCLC so a lactation consultant yeah I just really accessed NHS like support so what you know when midwives would come out to my house and, and health visitors and stuff and then um as I started going along, so, you know, going into like four months, five months, I started to look back and realize that actually a lot of the stuff that I was struggling with were common struggles and I wasn't really getting the support that I needed. And so then I became really passionate about supporting other parents. And I was like, I wanted other parents to have a better and easier start. Um, I had my daughter, my first child in 2009 and I had an interesting birth experience which then led to a not so easy breastfeeding experience and um I I didn't well like most people I didn't really know where to go for support so I just kind of fumbled a bit so I started with um I wanted to become an LLL leader a La Leche League leader which is a breastfeeding counselor. So I started doing that and working on that and um, took me a while because of children and stuff and life. So uh, my, I then had my second son and he was two. By that point, I knew I wanted to keep going and doing more. So then I started looking at becoming an IBCLC as well and did work to do that. But yeah, so then as um, an IBCLC, I decided that I think from, I mean, by that point, I had quite a bit more experience because I had been doing a lot of breastfeeding support in that time. Mm -hmm. And I was looking at community support and the lack of community support, knowledgeable, informed community support. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the issues that occur in breastfeeding can happen from about day three, day four and onwards. And there's not a lot, there's, I mean, that's a massive gap in care is when a mother's then discharged you know it's it's oftentimes left to them to seek out support mm -hmm. and um yeah there's just so many things that occur from that point on we don't always know where we can go so to create something there which is why i then started looking at doing the milk mentors peer support group and i wanted to create not just like a, a network for parents to access but a network for the actual peer supporters to have so that they could get supervision, constantly have some like update to training, have someone to go so that they can debrief and, and kind of keep them in an emotionally healthy state because it can be quite draining, mm. um, always doing support for other people. So yeah, yeah so that's, I mean, Milk Mentors was just created from that. And I've, I've, I have to say of all the things I've done, that's probably my favorite thing that I'm most proud of. It's just seeing other people get joy from supporting people. It's lovely. It's, yeah. it's an amazing course. And there was, I don't know how we managed to get so much information packed into the time frame. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. 
Yeah, it is like, and I think when I was writing it, again, I, I don't know if it's just because, you know, there is that passion in seeing everything. I'm like, I want everyone to know everything. And then it's like, well, I only have these hours. And I, yeah, I mean, the feedback is always like, that by the end of every day, you're a bit, oh, <laughs> but it is a lot, but yeah. Oh, and I was going to say that, yeah, so my craniosacral, again, from yeah. just supporting families, I've I've seen that a lot of times when babies don't latch or when babies are colicky or things like that, it can be rectified with some sort of cranial support. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on here and in the body. And it, so make, it makes pregnant. sense, doesn't it? Because babies, are, they're coming out with birth canals. Yeah. And, uh, sometimes that can take a little while. And so adjustments yeah. are really handy and you've seen yourself how much they can help yeah and I, I yeah I had personal experience with my own children so then I was like oh this is really cool um so then I thought that's something I'd like to do and I've been doing that for about six months the course has been tricky because it keeps getting postponed mm. so I'll do a bit and then yeah have a break but but yeah it's really I'm I'm looking forward to adding that into my practice because I can see the the benefits value of it amazing with your ibclc your international board certification of lactation consultancy <laughs> how long did that take you to achieve how long does that take on average and how in-depth does it go so you have to have 14 health sciences courses which are things like biology anatomy and physiology nutrition child development stuff like that so you have to have that I luckily had some of that from a previous degree, but um, I did have to take a few things. And then you have to have some other courses that add on to that. I had to do a thousand clinical hours of breastfeeding support. Wow. So, yeah, it's not, as an LLL leader, I was able to get that, but it can make it, it can restrict access to a lot for a lot of people because that's a difficult thing to do if you don't have access to giving clinical support. I had to do a 90 hour lactation specific course, which I did um, with Deborah Robertson, the lovely Deborah Robertson. She did that course for a year in London. And then I had to sit the board exam. So then I had to just study and, and do that. You have to turn in all of your, what you've done so that your prerequisites, once you've fulfilled those, um, you have to make sure you do that. And then you can apply to take the exam. And then it's six months from the exam. All in all, it took me about four years to get it, everything done and yeah. And I mean, I had to do it alongside having kids. I think maybe if you were just focused on that, <clears throat> then you would do it a bit quicker, but I was having to do my course alongside kids and, and the course ran for a year. So that was from that course, then you have to apply for the exam. So then that's another six months. And so things kind of drag on a bit, but. But that, that's yeah. a full on course. Like that is a lot of information that. Yeah. I can't imagine is given to many breastfeeding support people, which is why the IBCLC is such uh, an amazing thing to be able to offer parents because you have yeah. so much knowledge and so much experience. I was interested. It was interesting when um, when I took the course. So I did I did it with about I can't remember how about twenty other people were on the course with me. So we did it for a year, and there was only a about well there was myself and one other woman who were LLL leaders and there were a couple of other people who were in private practice like um there was a cranial osteopath and a couple of other people that were not NHS 
midwives or nurses or help, but the, yeah, so the rest of them were kind of NHS. A majority of those were self-funding, so it wasn't even like they were being, yeah, they, it wasn't something that the NHS was funding for them. And I was really interested to hear what the way things, because that was a big insight for me, because up until that point, I think a lot of what I was learning or my experience of the NHS was just through parents and supporting parents that were going through and my own personal experience but um <clears throat> when I did that course like it was it seemed like a really good opportunity for them to come in and debrief as well mm. um, and it was actually through that course and listening to them and learning that they didn't have any sort of counseling or debrief sessions or supervision in the way that you would really think that would be needed it was through that where I thought when I do my own organization, I'm going to have that because it is, yeah. I mean, they were really lacking that. And there was a lot of wanting to talk to things. I absolutely floored at some of the things they would experience that would just kind of, you know, you'd have something traumatic happen to you in a birth and then it'd be like, right, next one. And you just sort of move on. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I would probably be out for days with that one. But yeah. Yeah. I think that is one thing about the milk mentors and you can see my certificate up there that I really, really appreciate is the supervision and being able to have that group support of talking over things. And it's really, really helpful when supporting people to have that support for yourself. Yeah. And then being able to bounce off, like if you've not, somebody else brings it in and says, oh, I've had this and being able to discuss that and, and learn something from other people's experiences as well. There's a few hospitals that are breastfeeding friendly and they follow the BFI, the breastfeeding friendly initiative. The baby, yeah, baby friendly initiative. Baby yeah. friendly initiative, that's the one. I always think breastfeeding, breastfeeding. But it is, how, yeah, it is about breastfeeding, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about how that works? Is it the, ho the whole hospital that has this certification or is it particular units or perhaps particular people within those units? How does that work? Because a lot so, of people think that that means they're going to get great breastfeeding support. And it's a bit so baby friendly. So if a hospital is applying to be baby friendly, it's quite a huge process for them to undertake. And they have to do a lot of putting things into place. And then somebody comes in and audits that and says, OK, yeah, you've got um, one of the things is they have to have a, a breastfeeding group or some sort of like breastfeeding support clinic thing. For parents to access um, so they can get that going and then somebody comes in and goes yep they've got that pick and there are various things that they have to do so that so that they can pass on to the next stage and then after it's a three-stage process and then after that after they um, are approved through each stage then they become a baby friendly unit so it's not just the entire hospital which sometimes it, it can get marketed that way it can get shown to, to the public as like oh we're a baby friendly hospital but it yeah each unit is separate so you can have um, neonatal that's baby friendly but the maternity ward is not um or vice versa you can have maternity and the hospital or like both units in the hospital can be baby friendly but then the health visiting and community side of things can still be not so it's it's individuals and with each whatever unit it is that's applying, they each receive different um, job specific training. So for example, if you're a children's center and you are, are um, getting trained, so they update training whenever they do baby friendly 
when you're applying for baby friendly, you have to have updated training. And then that's done, I think, every year. But depending on what area you're in, you receive different training that's more specific to your job title. So in a, in a children's center, you would get training that's just on how to encourage parents to breastfeed and the benefits of breastfeeding. You wouldn't get training on how to actually physically support a woman with mm-hmm. breastfeeding because it would be out of the remit of that, that job role. So, but whereas like maybe the maternity ward or something would have more clinical knowledge around breastfeeding. There are a a certain amount of hours that they would need to do for this? Say about 16 hours, 16 to 24 hours. Of breastfeeding learning. And how long was our milk mentors course? Because that was a lot longer. That was 30 hours, yes. So that was a 30 hour course. I mean, I did the 90 hours for my lactation course and I did all of the clinical hours. Mm. And I can honestly say to you, there's still so much more out there that I don't know because there's just a lot. And um, I really, I feel like things like 16 hours, what do you, what do you touch on in 16 hours? The day that we had the day two, is it when we cover things like the norms of newborn behavior, mother's anatomy and physiology, baby's anatomy and physiology. And then on day three, we cover things like positioning and attachment. Mm-hmm. And when you can't get a baby to latch, various things that are used. So those two days is probably what you would receive in, in like a 16-hour course. There's, I, I feel very, very passionately about the fact that supporting people, mechanics mm-hmm. of breastfeeding, it's not about this is how you hold your baby it's not about this is how much milk they're taking in and how you can tell it's about how you talk to people and it's about language and it's about how you create a safe space and we talk a lot about that on our milk mentors course about about holding space about things like that I think that is where support really happens because that's when a lot of times holding so, cause we do, we have busy, and again, this is my craniosacral stuff coming in now. We hold ourselves physically tight when we have been traumatized, when we are trying to hold back emotion or any sort of, even a memory of something, we will physically hold ourselves tight, which that can impact mm-hmm. feeding. It can impact hormone releases and just general positioning and attachment. It can impact the way we interact with our baby. And that obviously is going to impact feeding is stuff that really that that's where the support happens and not necessarily just like oh you bring your baby to the breast and open wide and and look they're swallowing and I mean I do that when I'm supporting a family but I think as a foundation it's more about making sure that that yeah that the person feels like they can get to that yeah there's so Um, much more yeah and that I, I mean that's not that's obviously we can see that's not being handed out in training in within the NHS and it's, oh, it's just the short time because what's a, what's a not sweary word to a really fucking parents over I can't think of another <laughs> word yeah. I think that yeah. works <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's I mean we're just really screwing parents when when we are like oh okay well because I mean this is exactly where I was so I'll use my own situation it hurts my baby's latching but it hurts mm-hmm oh latch looks fine and that's what I get uh, that's what I got repeatedly it wasn't until day five ish when somebody by chance because that's what it is so when people say breastfeeding is not about luck I have to say it is 
by chance, I got a midwife who came in and showed me how to get a deep latch and sat with me and talked about why cluster feeding wasn't mean, not having enough milk and just talking about those things that I was like, oh, okay. So again, by luck, I got that amazing person that then a couple of days later had a midwife come in. Um, it was nine o'clock. I was literally just getting my baby to sleep and she came in and said to me, I really need to get up and have a shower and get on with my day and not lay in bed all day. And I was like, I have been feeding my child from about 2 a.m. Like, I was just like, oh my God. And I remember in that moment feeling like, cute, like, and say that I probably was definitely suffering from postnatal, not because I was staying in bed, but because I was by that point so detached and people were coming in and telling me things. And I was like on robot mode and really struggling. I think it's really disconcerting for new mothers to have I had it as well my personal experience first time around was that I had a midwife come in and say baby was actually feeding and latching quite well and a midwife say oh well you're holding the baby wrong do it like this and would come over and move my arms and I was like oh and I remember he, he came off and then I couldn't get him back on and she was just like just keep trying she left an hour later someone else come in and was like why are you holding your baby like that that's not right turned me I, I remember one of the midwives grabbing my boob and said do it like this and and you know cupped my boob and I remember like first time mom I was I was young I was 22 feeling very uh oh, and everybody's giving me different advice and none of it was really working yeah. <laughs> and my natural instincts of feeding worked out very well I remember coming home and thinking oh thank god I don't have to be told that I'm doing it wrong every five seconds now yeah that's the big one I had um I had a mum say to me when I she was telling me everything and debriefing everything and I was like mm, it sounds like and then was talking to her about it and I was like things you could try are and then she was like so now I'm talking to one other person who's telling me another thing and mm -hmm. telling me something completely different and she said it to me and she was quite upset and I just and it's, that's happened but I remember just thinking like it's just really difficult to come up against these situations where people have seen so many different professionals and there's no understanding of the variation in knowledge like training like you're saying you know you've got 16 hours of training versus years what's the what's the difference they don't know and so then I'm just one other voice sitting there saying, oh, this is something you can try. And it's like, I'm, they're just done by that point. They're so done. And I accept <laughs> I that. Take I accept any more in. Yeah. When I don't really feel that the IBCLC role is very recognized by the NHS, um, it's all about baby friendly. And so again, like I was saying earlier, they don't fund IBCLCs, a lot of IBCLCs are self-funding and it's not cheap. I mean, the exam on its own is about 500 pounds or it was when I took it a few years ago and you have to recertify every five years. So it's a continuous, you know, you're paying for that. That's not including all of the other, like the lactation course I took, which was a lot more, but yeah, it's not recognized. So when you don't have the NHS saying, oh, see an IBCLC, people are like, well, why? who are you and why would I even bother why am I paying for that there's a lot of there are undertones of you know oh an IBCLC in private practice is just trying to make a buck off of a vulnerable mum 
And it's like, well, no, I do have to make a living. I have had a midwife once say to me, oh, it's, yeah, it's just the whole, like, they have to pay for your support. And she kind of made like a free support is what parents really need. And I thought, but it's not free. It's tax dollars. It's not coming. They're not paying it in that moment. But that midwife that comes out isn't doing it for free. She's getting paid. paid. Yeah. So... <laughs> Unfortunately, in this day and age, you know, your time is worth money and we have to pay for good information. And you're saying that the IBCLC took you over four years, really, because of all the experience and everything else you had to put into that. That's a long time. It was a long time of things, you know, time away from your family and other things that you could have been doing to train in this way. And for them not to, rec for the NHS not to recognize that should have more recognition is quite it's quite crazy yeah and I, yeah I mean I think I think a lot of parents when they it's and like myself I think most parents don't realize until they're further down the line and they have the headspace to look back on things and they think oh there are peer supporters there's breastfeeding counselors there's IBCLCs there's all this other support available to me there are these breastfeeding groups that I wasn't told about or this um national organization I can call and there's all of this support that's not being told to parents, offered to parents, because there's this very much this culture of like our mums, my mums, I'm going to yeah. help these people, even if that means I'm not going to let them have access to other help. And it really, it, I mean, it impacts greatly on, mm -hmm. on the person that's being supported. So typical mums that come to you for IBCLC support, what are do you have is there a common theme of women coming saying well this has happened and this has happened and and i need help so yeah. i thrown around quite a lot at the moment which just to me seems a little overdiagnosed. i think yeah. sometimes perhaps with people who are a little out of their depth might say oh you're having problems because of tongue tie is that a yeah. common request that you get oh i need a tongue tie snipped can you come and check yeah I don't generally if if people just want an assessment a tongue tie assessment then I will oftentimes just refer them to a tongue tie practitioner but I will say to them in a lot of time a lot of times when you're looking for a tongue tie assessment it's it's ideal to have just informed like skilled feeding support in advance because it oftentimes we just push to the tongue tie because it, it becomes the first protocol like the first thing that we look at instead of I mean it's a it's a procedure that's going to alter the body mm. um the first thing we look at it should be further down the line we should be looking at good skilled feeding support transitioning attachment yeah the they have gone down is literally because like because I started out really had very much the time when people were talking out a lot about tongue tie and I decided that he had one and I self-diagnosed that with no real knowledge at that point. I was only really just starting with supporting other parents. But um, I self-diagnosed that he had a tongue tie based on what other people were saying on the internet and from just looking at symptoms and stuff. And then um, I decided to have his tongue tie snipped and it was quite traumatic for myself, um, even though he went on to be okay, as far as we can tell. But he was four months old, he went on a nursing strike, wouldn't feed for 24 hours, screamed and screamed. Thankfully, the next day I was already gonna be going to a La Leche League 
workshop day. So I just took him screaming and it was just nice to be around other people and being assured that it was okay. And, um, and then it was fine. And we got, we got through that. On reflection, I can say he just had a normal lingual frenulum. So that is normal anatomy. It's oftentimes misdiagnosed as a tongue tie in itself, but the tongue tie is more restriction. It's to do with the restriction of the tongue, not just the frenulum being there, being present, which again is normal. Um, he had no restriction. He was, of all of my children, the best latcher from birth. Like just opened wide, latched on, fed really well, um, very settled. He was my favorite breastfeeder of all three of my children, always was. But I kind of got pulled into that, you know, the whole like, if you don't have it sorted out, then when he's six, he could have, I don't know, all kinds of speech problems and all of these things. He's the only one of my children that has speech problems. And I, yeah, and I often think, so now, again, going through the craniosacral route, I can see how, you know, just having that cut creates things like scar tissue. It, it impacts other parts of the body as well. I don't know if he would have had speech problems otherwise. I don't know. But it's just one of those things where it sort of makes me question why I did it, if it was necessary, and what impact it had. Mm. And I think a lot of times when I talk to parents now, they do come to me and they say, I've been told my baby has tongue tie. Um, they've sought support for painful latch because there's a lack of skill there for supporting mm. parents in the NHS with painful latches. It's oftentimes a midwife or somebody will have a look in the mouth, say, ah, the baby has a tongue tie. I've talked to a mother recently, her baby was diagnosed with a tongue tie from two meters away. And it's like, because okay. they're keeping a two meter distance. Wow, well, that, that's skill, you know? right? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was like, it, what would have happened is they would have looked normal labial frenulum mm -hmm. and, sorry, lingual fren frenulum. And they would have seen that and gone, ah, that's a tongue tie. The, and there was probably no feeding support, especially if that baby was two meters away. I don't know how. I mean, they could have talked through it, but it sounded like from what the mother said, like that was a given. I just feel like, yeah, it's it's become the thing because there's that lack of skill. It's become that thing of like, oh, well, I have this procedure done and that'll sort it out. And it's also being sold as a reset button. So when it happens, then your baby will be able to latch. And I've actually heard it said on numerous occasions from various different moms that it sort of resets your baby, but you can't just reset a baby. It's going to have an impact on that human being yeah. and their development, but none of that's being told. It's just being sold as a positive and none of the other things. And I have seen babies come out with like, uh, what's it called? Tongue dysfunction just sort of like it takes and again they're being told it takes a while to relearn to suck so just stick with it and I think but that shouldn't be if you're having trouble attaching your baby to the breast without pain before you start getting to that <clears throat> you need to explore all of these other things yeah and I, I just think there's just that lack of skill there so it is being kind of pushed now as one of these big things and it's every it mom I'm talking to it almost sounds like the lack of skill is is oh it's not working just go over there and do that that will fix it and it's pushing it away from that that person who doesn't really know what they're doing and just yeah. oh it's a tongue tie i don't need to do anything here off you go go find somebody else who can support you and like 
if you get a tongue tie referral at the hospital before day three, so like day one, day two, um, you're having a painful latch, they refer you for a tongue tie revision. It's usually about, what's well, at least a week, but a lot of times it takes about two weeks to get seen in the, in, on the NHS. By that point, you've been discharged. You're mm. now out in community with the health visiting team. It's not anything to do with, with midwifery. And if you think about what can happen in two weeks, if you're having pain, it's unlikely for a lot of moms that they've continued breastfeeding waiting for that procedure so it really i think it, it's failing mums considerably to be like oh wait two weeks or you know even a week i mean i i get parents who are like i operate a 24-hour booking system because i get parents who are like they have a bad night and they're like i'm gonna quit tomorrow can you see me now <laughs> and it's a week is a huge yeah to wait, a long yeah with my with my second it took me 12 hours and I I had no idea where I could get support or help from. I just had no idea. I didn't know that anywhere existed. I thought if the midwives couldn't help me at the hospital, where who else is going to help me? And yeah. I came home and I fed him solidly for 12 hours the whole night, he fed. And I woke up the next, my husband came downstairs the next morning and I said, go and get me formula. I, I don't, I can't do this. And... Hmm. I remember him going, well, is there anyone that you can speak to? And I was like, no one, no one can help me. There's no one. I don't know. So what's your, where do you like to send people first for support? So if I, if I do, like if somebody phones me and they want to book a consultation, um, I usually have a little chat with them to see what's going on. If they have had any sort of, so if it's to do with like baby not latching or painful latch, like baby doesn't open wide enough or just little things like that I sometimes explore the birth and mm. see if there's anything that might I mean it's in many situations I well most I think every baby should see a craniosacral therapist or a cranial osteopath from birth just to kind of even if they come out with the best birth and they are moving perfectly and rocky I feel like it, there's no harm in that because it's not invasive and it's just resetting the body to like it's sort of rebalancing everything so I think even if you don't book me go do that mm -hmm. but because I realize that a lot of parents are short on funds especially in those you know early weeks and stuff I will oftentimes just say if they've had a forceps delivery or if there's anything there where you feel that there is like they're not opening wide enough they're restricted in movement it might be worth seeing a craniosacral therapist or cranial osteopath before seeing me because mm -hmm. if I come in I can look at that and we can look at things and I can help in lots of other ways but I'd often then refer them to go see somebody and then come back and it seems like one of those things where it's just best to like have that done and then we can see each other and then we can kind of work on things around that so I do often suggest that it's one of the reasons why I've decided to do it myself because then I was like at least I don't have to send people away and then they're paying for another consultation somewhere else and they're coming back and kind of work it into that session with them but um, I do find it's really really important and I would say I I will I mean I will and I have referred out to tongue-tie practitioners so it's like I think sometimes people think that I'm like anti that or I don't believe in it it's not that I don't believe I believe that we are over diagnosing it and it does have negative impacts on the development of babies where it's not needed and we are seeing some babies that are really struggling as a result. So I just think that we need to do better about 
looking at all of the stuff there that's going on with the baby before saying, now we're going to have this body altering procedure done, which we don't ever talk about it like that. We say, just a little snip, some babies sleep through it and they don't even know that it happens. And I think that's really downplaying it. Some babies do sleep through it. My baby screamed his head off and there was blood everywhere. And the IBCLC was actually, a. and at one point she had me go outside and stand outside to try and feed him because she just thought the cold air might shock him into calming down. It was really, uh, yeah. And then I thought like, like now I look back and I think, well, that was probably traumatic as well. Like going out in the middle of winter. (laughs) It it was, I think, Oh, I think it was, it's all kinds of like, you can have babies that are really calm. We shouldn't sell that though, as this is what's going to happen. It could be all kinds of things and parents aren't really hearing that they're hearing it's going to be the best thing that ever happened to them and when you gonna hear fix that everything everything yeah perfect afterwards and when you were like in tears and in pain and struggling and desperate that sounds really amazing and you're willing to do that so yeah skilled support <laughs> keep going on about that <laughs> I was going to go back to what you were saying about whether what what sort of things I see a lot of I would say at the moment um and this has probably been the case for the last year or so I see a lot of low supply and um perceived low supply or actual low supply both so I have seen a lot of hormonal conditions um some of them don't result in low supply I have seen a lot of hormonal conditions coming through where um where they are actually impacting so like thyroid conditions where they are impacting supply underdeveloped breasts as a result of things that have happened in childhood and yeah so I've seen a lot of genuine low supply clinical low supply but I have seen perceived low supply I've also seen and this is probably the most common it is where you don't even know what it is because they've come to you about three or four weeks in and you can't work out if it's poor support that's led to low supply Mm -hmm. or if it was low supply that's led to poorly feeding baby it's all like a web of well I don't know what this is so let's try and eliminate by doing a plan and then see what comes out of that and yeah it's a bit I've been doing so I've been doing a lot of feeding plans with that which I've done a little blog post about feeding plans because I find that's one of the things that comes from the NHS that really really winds me up is the generic feeding plan mm. the day well, three all your links below to your blog as yeah. well and um your milk mentors and your page yeah. as well for IBCLC support yeah that'll be good yeah I think um there's so many things I can go on about so I want to keep rambling but yeah I think that I think that it's a really common theme in these interviews that there's so much to talk about isn't there so you're gonna have to come back and talk to us again I would do yeah enjoy it thank you very much for joining us and telling us all about your story and for all of this information as well. I think that breastfeeding support is so important for people who want to breastfeed because not everybody does and you know everyone can make yeah. their own choices on that but to be able to know beforehand that there is support out there and that there are these levels of support as well and that they are accessible is really really important so thank you so much for telling everyone about that. Thank you for having me on.